Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, Misha sung the song about the holiness of God. Take a look at Zechariah chapter 14, beginning at verse 20. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. I just thought it was very interesting as Misha drew our attention to the holiness of God, the Feast of Tabernacles, particularly with regard to how it will be celebrated when the Messiah is reigning in Jerusalem and we are united to him and all the nations of the world are going up to worship him. It becomes a kingdom, a world, a body of humanity that is holy to the Lord. Everything becomes holy to God. God's holiness permeates his entire creation. And so the passage here is saying even the most mundane items in the world will be marked by the holiness of God. The bells on the reins of horses will be holy to the Lord. He says the cooking pots that the priests might use just to cook the remains of the sacrificial offerings that they would use for food, what's in their kitchen, their cooking pots in their Levitical kitchens would be holy to the Lord. They would be like the instruments in the very temple of God on the very altar, which will be and are holy to the Lord. In fact, there will be nothing that is unholy that will be in God's kingdom. That's what he means when he says there will no longer be a Canaanite. He doesn't mean that the Canaanites exist as a people, but the term Canaanite denotes that which is most profane before God, that which is most unholy. So in other words, nothing unholy will be present in God's kingdom. The writer to the Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so the permeation of God's very own holiness impacts everything in God's kingdom. So now you ask, well, wait a minute. How do you know it's God's kingdom? All it says in verse 20 is on that day. So if we look at Zechariah 14, just very quickly, sort of summarizing some of the main points, look at verse 1. On that day, on the day the Lord is coming. So we know this is the time of Messiah's coming, when he will appear in all of his glory and before he establishes his kingdom. 
But before things get better, things seem to get worse. Look at verse three, at verse two. God tells us he will be the instrument by which he gathers all the nations of the world. Where? To Jerusalem. To fight against the city and the people inhabiting it. He says the city will be captured. Jerusalem will fall. He says the houses will be ransacked. The women will be misused. Half of the city will go into exile. But the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. There will be some that will remain But half of the people of Jerusalem will be exiled from the city. We're told at that point in time, sometime in the future from where we are now, but much closer than where we have ever been before. Well, that stands to reason because we are further along in history than we've ever been. But the indicators of the Lord's soon coming are significant in our day and age. Because in 1948, Israel is regathered back into her homeland as a nation, not just as a trickle of individuals or of a mass of people coming into the land. That has happened all throughout history. There are always Jews residing in the land of Israel. There never was a time when there never were any Jews in the land of Israel. But what's unique about 1948 is that now they've become another Nation, or they've been renationalized, if you might say. They now are a nation of people in the modern world. No longer do we merely talk about the Jewish people as an ancient people. The problem with our colleges and our seminaries and universities, for the most part, that educate our pastors is that Jewish history stops at 70 AD. And our people know, are, are those believers. Manning our pulpits, have no idea what has happened to the Jewish people since then. And as a consequence, for many, what has happened in our era in 1948 does not have the full impact that it ought to have on all of us who proclaim the truths that are revealed in God's word. But 1948 was a watershed moment in history where after 2,500 years of wandering This planet, the Jewish people are brought home from the four corners of the earth. The land of Israel is the most diverse nation on the globe next to the United States because Jews from all over the world have been regathered into their land, into their homeland. Jews from Africa, Jews from South America, Jews from North America, Jews from the Orient, Jews from down under, Jews from the Middle East, Jews from India and China have all come back to their homeland. And in our day and age, in the 21st century, for the very first time, more Jews reside in Israel than any other nation in the world. That is a watershed moment as well, for God had told us over the centuries that he would regather his people back into his land. I remember years and years ago when rifling through some bookstore and seeing an old track written in the 1880s, and a commentator or the writer was commenting on Daniel saying that in the last days, many would be going to and fro, Daniel says, and knowledge will be increased. And so on this track, this publication to share the good news of Messiah, 
They were saying the the nearness of the Lord's coming is upon us. This was like 1880 it was written. Already the stagecoach is going from the east coast to the west. Trains are already moving through the central plains of the United States. And now in the 21st century, think about how communication has dramatically been altered. Not over 100 years, but just in the last 10 years, 15 years, and already what, iPhone 5, 6, 7 is on the, on the horizon within just a few years of the first iPhone coming out. Knowledge shall be increased. Many will run to and fro, and the Jewish people are gathered into their homeland. I say we are much closer because we are further in time, but we are much closer because the sign indicators of our Lord's coming are staring us in the face. There are many other items we could point our finger at, but here when we think about Sukkot as the time when the holiness of God will permeate his creation and the kingdom of God will dawn, and the Messiah will reign. We are much closer to that time than ever before. So the writer, Zechariah, tells us there's a time coming when the Lord is going to gather his people to their homeland. We are in that time. He's telling us of a time when Jerusalem again will be the pivotal city on the planet. He's showing us here in Zechariah chapter 3, the nations of the world are not massing their armies on London. They are not massing their armies on Moscow. They are not massing their armies on D.C. It's on Jerusalem that they are massing their armies. That would never have been if Israel had not become reestablished as a nation in 1948. Zechariah's prophecy could not have been fulfilled before then because Jerusalem must be made a cup of trembling. It must be that which will lure the nations of the world to it so as to destroy it or at least to attempt to. And when that happens, the Lord, Zechariah tells us, the Lord, verse three, will go out and fight against those nations. It is not the military establishment and arm of the Israeli defense forces that will vanquish their foes. It is God himself, not unlike the time of Gideon, who was told there are too many men that are ready to attack. You need to reduce your troops Because God's intention was to demonstrate that it was he who would go to battle for them. And notice how he goes to battle in Zechariah. It's very interesting. Verse 4, he just tells us, On that day when he goes to battle, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of the city of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two. An earthquake is going to strike. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. What a weird description if you've ever been to Jerusalem. Because if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that the Mount of Olives is east of the city. And before it lies the Kidron Valley. And that valley flows north and south. What the scripture is telling us, what would naturally happen 
would be an earthquake would hit and it would separate the city further from the Mount of Olives. You would expect that the earthquake would run along the valley and run north and south, as it were. But no, he tells us that the rift will flow east and west. In other words, it's going to cut the mountain right in half. And in doing that, it opens up a valley from the Mount of Olives for the people of Israel who are rescued by our Messiah to enter, re-enter the city of Jerusalem from which they were exiled. So this is like dramatic. The whole topography of Jerusalem is going to be shifted. Later in the book of Zechariah or in this chapter, he tells us that the plain that runs along the Jordan Valley north from Mount Hermon, all the way south to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the globe. I remember one of my professors, when I told him that I was going to be taking some classes over at a secular university and in their divinity school, and he said, that is like one of the most liberal and worst institutions you could go to. He said, you know, that is as close to hell as you can get here on earth. I said, really? I didn't know I was venturing that far south, you know. But no, that university was not as close to hell as we can get. But the Dead Sea is the lowest place on the globe. And what Zechariah tells us is that that area that is already the lowest place on the earth, something like 1,500 feet below sea level, and scientists have not yet plunged to the very bottom of the Dead Sea. They're still seeking to discover how deep it is. But Zechariah tells us that that whole plain running from Mount Hermon all the way down to the Red Sea, down toward a lot, will be depressed even further south or lower. (laughs) And because that plain gets lowered, Jerusalem rises and it will become the highest point on the globe. And the city of Jerusalem, which will be the place where the Messiah will establish his throne, will be the highest place on the earth. And the Lord will reign from one end of the heavens to the other. And all nations will flow up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. That's what Zechariah tells us. It's really exciting, isn't it? It's almost like now, you know. We say, wait, I want to see my kids grow up. But then again, now, you know, we want this to happen. Want to see the Red Sox get the World Series just delay for a a month. But no, there's even so. Come, Lord Yeshua, and bring the final deliverance that is promised. Now take a look at verse 16. All of those that survive, all of those that are spared, the faithful remnant among Israel, Those Gentile peoples that embrace the truth of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All those that align themselves with the living God of our universe. Notice what he says. They they will go up year after year to worship the king. Notice this though. Look at this. Survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem. I can't help but seeing that for the moment because it speaks volumes about the compassion and grace of God. The very enemies of his people, the very enemies of God himself, he says, will be spared and will come up 
to worship the Lord, at least those that survive, he tells us. The grace of God continues to shine through the word of God, even in the midst of a statement of impending doom and judgment. But they will go up year after year after year after year to do what? To celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And of course, there's a warning. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem, do not go to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, they will have no rain. So now there are tons and tons of themes that are attached to the celebration of Sukkot. Can't get into all of it. I remember growing up in the synagogue as a kid, trying to learn all of this stuff. And every moment in the service, there was something else I needed to know about. And they just assumed I was supposed to just somehow know it. And they never stood back and said, let me explain why this passage is read here, why this is recited this way. You know, it wasn't until I was an adult that I started studying these things. It was just, just do it. You know, just do what you're supposed to do, kind of an attitude. And uh, we did what we were supposed to do, but we didn't really embrace it. It was sort of like just going through the motions without having a real relationship with the God who's commanded these kinds of things that you'd fall in love with him. And so it's taken years later that I step back and I say, oh, that's why that's done. Oh, that's why this is done. And what a terrible thing that is because there's some beautiful things in these traditions and in their further explaining or helping us to understand what's going on in the scriptures. So let me just take a few moments. I don't take a long time on this, but he talked about rain. There's so many things that go on on the Feast of Tabernacles because it's the last of the seven major festivals that the Jewish people observe. The major festivals are found in Leviticus 23. So you read of Passover. You read of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You read of the Feast of Shavuos, the first fruits. You read of of, of Pentecost and, and Shavuos and the Feast of Weeks. And then you read of Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur. And then the final feast is Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. I mentioned at the front end that we remember that God dwelt with us in tabernacles, in a booth, in a tabernacle for 40 years. We have a simile of what the Jewish people dwelt in, booths, for these seven days. They're made in a very uh, non-stable manner because during the wilderness wandering, we had to depend upon God to survive. And so the sukkah booth is to remind us that You know, things here are very tangible and that things are easily destroyed and that we ourselves are very vulnerable and we're very weak and we're very needy and our bodies wear away. They run down on us. We do die. And sometimes in the process, we suffer along the way as we make our way to the final day that we have for us to live. And so the sukkah booth is to remind us that without God, we couldn't even survive the moments that we have. And that's why we have the palm branches, so you can see through up to the heavens and at night to see the stars, to remember it's God who has sustained us through our own wilderness wandering here on earth for our 70 plus years or so. And God dwells with us. He dwelt in a tabernacle like we dwelt in for those 40 years. 
not in a stationary temple that would come later with Solomon, but rather in a tent-like structure. He dwelt with us. He walks with us. He goes through life with us. And as the psalmist says, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with me. Messiah said, I will be with you even unto the end of the ages. And so the Lord dwells with us. That's one of the themes of the Feast of Tabernacles. Another theme is the beauty of the land God has given us that he will restore that we read about in Zechariah. And that's why we have these these various different items that are taken from the land of Israel. The citron, the ethrog, which is a unique fruit to the land of Israel. It's sort of like a lemon, but bigger, (laughs) I guess. But it is, uh, you know, you come up and you you can feel it and see. But uh, then they have the lulav branches, the palm branches. And this is to remind us of all the fruits that grow on the trees that the Lord has provided us with. The lulav is to remind us of the palms and the the palm branches, to remind us of the mountains, the hills that uh, Israel uh, has is to remind us as you shake it and the lulav branches sort of bend apart. It's to remind us of the valleys in between the hills that uh, describe or that characterize the beauty of the land of Israel. The myrtle and the willow branches are to remind us of those uh, bushes that grow along the uh, waterways, the rivers, and the wadis that mark the land of Israel. You know what a wadi is? A wadi is a riverbed that's dry during the summer months, but then during the spring and fall, due to the rains, it becomes a rushing river. Many of the crusader castles built their castles on these wadis, thinking they would serve as moats. And then during the warmer seasons, they became dry riverbeds, and the Arabs just attacked them and destroyed uh, these crusader castles. Many of them you can see in the land of Israel to this day, built on the wrong spot because they didn't know the geography of the land. But it's to remind us of all the fruits of the land, the forests of the land, the trees, and all the bounties, the land flowing with milk and honey. The land of Israel is the only land in the world that has nine different geographical regions. It's unique in all of the world, even though it's the size of the wonderful state of New Jersey. It, is, it has nine different climate zones. And no other nation in the world has it, not even Russia that has that sprawling area because it lacks uh, the kinds of desert regions that the land of Israel has. So in the time of Sukkot, remember the land that God has given to us. Remember the holiness of God. Remember the fact that all nations of the world are to worship the Lord. It's the season when the Lord will reign. He dwells among us, and that festival points to the return of Messiah, whose feet will touch on the Mount of Olives, and the kingdom will dawn. It is also, as we saw, a time when God will give rain. This ends the grape harvest. All the grapes are brought in during the season or just before in the land of Israel. And then the grapes and are replanted. And now the prayer is for rain so that the land will be nourished and that their crops will grow. And if they are blessed of God, they will have the former and latter rains. Rains in the fall, rains in the spring, which could quadruple their harvest if they are blessed of God. Land of Israel is unique. No major river that runs through it. It has the Jordan River that 
uh, borders it, but not like the Nile that flows right through the center of Egypt. And if you build the tributaries, you can then begin to irrigate your land. Not like the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that flows through uh, Babylon or Chaldea, today Iraq and Syria, that they could just build tributaries and irrigate the land. No, the land of Israel was dependent upon God's blessing. If they had no rain, they could not nurture or provide for their crops. And so at the Feast of Tabernacles, as the fall hits, prayer is for rain, that the Lord would shower that upon us, that our crops would grow. The rabbis tell us, that rain in scripture has a symbolic sense to it. Maybe not in every context, but in general. And I think they're right. That rain and water is oftentimes a symbol, a pointer to the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating our very spirits. The work of the Spirit of God that not only regenerates, but also restores and makes us the kinds of people God would have us to be. So the rabbi said it's not enough just to pray that God would provide rain, but that he would provide his spirit so that our souls might be brought to life. For if our souls are not brought to life and we are not responsive to the love and grace of God, his blessings will not fall upon us. And so the rabbi said that when we pray for rain, we're also praying for God's spirit to restore us and to redeem us and to enable us to be the kinds of people God would have us to be as ones who would be holy unto the Lord. And so it is no accident that in John chapter seven and eight, John devotes two chapters to the celebration of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, as Messiah observed those festivals. There are really two major Traditions, the lighting of the menorah, and that takes place on the Feast of Tabernacles, and Yeshua stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And you read that in John chapter 8. That will reserve for another Sukkot. But in John chapter 7, he stands up on the great day of the feast, Hosanna, Hosanna Rabbah, the great rejoicing. Rabbis added a day to the seven-day festival of Sukkot because why should we stop rejoicing? Let's rejoice another day. And so today, the Jewish people celebrate Sukkot for eight days. And in the first century, they did the same. And so on the great day of the feast, the last day of the great Hosannas, save us, O Lord, is recited over and over again. And prayer for rain is uttered. And the priests leave the temple compound. They march out the southern gate. The gate today, the dung gate that leads to the wailing wall, the western wall where we, the Jewish people worship around the temple itself. And they exit out of that gate. They go down into the valley where Hezekiah's tunnel is located where the ancient city of David was located, where the walls that Nehemiah rebuilt around the city of Jerusalem were located, where there are incredible excavations going on right now in that very part of Jerusalem, where they're finding all kinds of unique elements with names on it, names that are found in the writings of the prophets. 
And in that area where the Hezekiah's tunnel was built, it flows out into the pool of Siloam. And from the pool of Siloam, the priests would gather water. The water that was used there was used to anoint the kings of Israel. And from that pool, the water would be taken and brought back in a processional through that gate, the wet southern gate, and into the temple proper area itself. On this occasion, the priests had erected these silver tubes that were hoisted up in the air by scaffolding along, uh, alongside these, this huge altar that was in the very temple. And one set of the priests would go up on one side of the altar, another set of priests went on to the other altar. And one set of priests would be pouring the water from the pool of Siloam down the tubes, which would then flow along the base of the altar. And on the other side, there were a group of priests that took wine, which was a symbol of joy and the overflowing of God's grace to his people and would flow down to the other side of the base of the altar in Jerusalem. And around the altar, a series of priests with the lulav and the ethrog would be marching around the altar. And as they would be marching around, they would be reciting the variety of psalms, the psalms of ascent. Psalms 118, 120, all of those psalms that are in there. And they would be praying to God that he would send rain. And they would recite from Isaiah chapter 12. And Isaiah 12, which is the end of this great section about the coming of Messiah. They would say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away. And you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So as the water is poured and the wine was poured, they would recite the psalm and they would understand these water from the wells of salvation is a cry for the very presence of the Spirit of God who would save us, would re-enliven us, would redeem us and restore us and reunite us to the living God. And so in John chapter 8, on this great day, when the priests were going through their uh, ritual, as the people were celebrating and reciting these psalms, it says that Yeshua stood up and with a loud cry, You don't read that very much, but with a loud cry, he shouts out, if anyone, this is verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, while the wine and the water is poured out, while the cry for rain is going up, while they're beseeching God for the spirit of God to rain down upon us, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the word of God, the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. In other words, he's saying from your very innermost being, you will gush forth the very presence of God's spirit. And as a consequence, you will be holy to the Lord. For the spirit of the Lord will rest Upon you. The key is we must come to Him. We must come to Messiah. 
He's the one that has the answers to our need. He's the one that has provision for what we deeply want, which is relief from our guilt, release from our sin, acceptance by the living God. And thus he says, all who come unto me, all who thirst, and that's the key. There are many who said, I, am, I don't desire God. I don't feel I have a need from it for him. They are not thirsty. But if you're thirsty, if you've had those moments in your life where you've said, I need help and I need it desperately. I have a burden on my soul that needs to be lifted. If you thirst, you'll only find refreshment in the waters that Messiah will provide. Waters that are of him. Waters that are his spirit. They and only, or I should say he and only he, will provide. And that's why some have said that our souls are restless till they find their rest in you, O God. I pray this Sukkot, this Shabbat, this day of rest and reflection will be the day, if you have not experienced it before, when you will experience the the quench to your thirst because Messiah will provide it. And if we know him, it is to him we must continually turn day in and day out for the same provision for our own need. Our destination is sure, but the journey is still a rocky one for all of us. And therefore, we too must always come because we too are thirsty. And it is to him that we must go And it is from him that we will be sustained. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your gift of life to us. We thank you for the offer that you make to give us of your spirit. And so we pray, Lord, that we might drink and drink to the full. May we taste and see that you, O Lord, are good. May we not delay. May we not rationalize this moment away. But may we respond as your spirit moves upon our hearts. May we truly surrender and yield to you our life and our Savior. For it's in the name of Messiah we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.